everybody. It's Wayne with Mark and Areed, and we are so excited that you've come to watch the Eat Community Podcast. We know you're going to enjoy it. We actually did it live originally on our Eat Community webinar series, which we also invite you to come to, but you will love this podcast that you're going to be listening to right now. Hey everybody, um, welcome to the Economic Action Team in our exciting Wednesday night series with Mark Shepard, and who has never missed a week of this, which is amazing. And again, if you've heard all the stories of other times of everything he's been through, um, we're going to have fun tonight, and he's going to talk about um, forest ecology and restoration agriculture. A couple little announcements to get started. First, amazing webinar that's going on tomorrow. And it's not associated with EAT. I did send out a link to it in the announcements that I sent to all of you earlier in the week. But if you don't have that, don't worry. Go into your EAT site, and up in the right-hand corner, there's a little picture of yourself, a little icon. You click on that, and there's a drop-down, and it'll show announcements. And you can look right there. And that'll give you the link to this webinar. And it is a webinar being done by... Dr. Elaine Ingham, and Mark, you might just mention you know her and I don't well, so she's going to be talking about soils, soils, and it's hosted by a couple of friends of ours, Raleigh Latham, and um, my brain's going dead, help me Mark, um, talked about Matt it earlier Powers. today. Yes, Matt, Matt Powers. Powers. Right, so Raleigh and, and Matt will be the hosts, I'm sure Elaine is going to be doing most of the talking. It might go two hours long. That's how long it's scheduled. Mark's laughing a little bit because I think he's going to say a little bit about her speaking. But she's, she's outstanding. Um, there's over 1,000 registrants already for it. They will cut it off when 1,000 people get on it live. So if you want to get on it, I would come a little early to get on. But you should go and register. It's going to be great. These guys are sort of uh, working together with us. They're not yet involved actively in EAT. However, it's likely they will be. We are, we're not no, we're sure on that. And they may even host uh, a segment that we do on a regular basis on some topic that we haven't discussed yet. But, but they're going to be real helpful and, and cooperate with us, and we're cooperating with them. And we're actually, they're using our platform, which is this GoToWebinar platform, to do their webinar. So that's tomorrow. That's at noon Mountain Time. You know, you're going to have to figure it out your time. So in the U.S., it would be 11 Pacific. 1 Central, 2 Eastern. The last announcement. We are having our live event, our first economic action team live event. And I actually, I'm going to look at the attendees here quickly again. I know that there's a couple of you that have already said you're flying out here. Let me see if those folks are on, which is really cool. Um, yep, yeah, no, no, I don't. There, we, have a, we have about 10 Dustins that are in this group, and there are a couple <laughs> of them on here right now. And there's a Dustin Hollis. It's not on right now. That's flying out, and we have a couple of people flying from out of the country, and and Tony K coming from Oregon. Anyway, it's going to be fun. It's two days. Saturday will just be a bunch of fun. Mark was actually out with us last year, and, and Mark, I have never published this yet, but I'm going to actually put it on your your um, your fireside chat that you did. Oh wow! Put it on. Wow. It's really very cool, um, and. We have a whole bunch of videos that Mark did when he's out there that we're also going to be publishing as a part of some courses that we're doing, and we'll probably put them on here with the team too. You guys are, you guys are getting our best, and we'll put them on um, with that. Where Mark was looking around my farm, and it was in this time of the year, and it had been dry just like it's been now through the whole summer, and he gave some really great um, uh, restoration agriculture lessons as it relates to what he saw on my property. Uh, so that event's going on. You guys are all invited. It's free for you. We do have some places you can sleep. It's not like you're going to be staying in a hotel, but we've got bunking space for you if you'd like to come. There's a campground right down the road from us that's got hookups or whatever, but camping on site you can do also. So we'll figure that out. We'll pick you up at the airport if you want to be flying in um, on Friday. Probably not on Saturday because we'll be pretty busy. But uh, anyway, that's our first event. Probably, hopefully, we'll have one in Mark's area sometime, and maybe next year in the spring or summer where it makes sense. We want to have one in your area, wherever you're at in the world. So anyway, 
that's all I have announcement-wise. I'm going to turn it over to Mark. He's got a lot of good stuff for us, so go for it. One last thing. Thank you to my staff. I say that. I can't say it enough. Mark, Mark from Bangladesh has not ever missed one of these for many, many hours. Thank you, Mark. Stephanie's here sitting with me. Deb's working out and working in our house. And um, thanks, and thank you, Mark, and go for it. It's all yours. All right. Hey, welcome, everybody. Uh, as you know, uh, we've been covering the uh, college curriculum on forest ecology, <clears throat> and of course we're doing it from the perspective of a restoration ecology, I mean a restoration agriculture, landowner, manager, farmer, rancher, etc. Um, the basic premise of restoration agriculture is that we can accomplish actual ecosystem restoration simultaneous with agricultural production. And, and the big key to this whole thing is doing ecosystem mimicry, plant community mimicry. We want to create systems that are the closest approximation to a natural system that we can get to because we know that natural systems are going to take care of themselves all by themselves for all practical purposes and then we just harvest the yields. Something just changed in my sound. Am I on or not? Somebody give me some feedback. Hello. You're on, Mark. You're doing okay. fine. Um, Thank you. I, I don't know what it was. You it, just muted. Okay. Um, yeah, I and, muted. I muted, so I'm going to yeah. mute again now. Much of my inspiration came from J. Russell Smith, Tree Crops. He wrote it in 1926 when the uh, U.S. was undergoing quite a bit of uh, genuine starvation, hard times. Uh, a lot of uh, folks were looking at different ways to produce food, and one of, one of the things that really turned me on is he suggested that we come up with a permanent agriculture. And wow, look at that contraction right there, permanent agriculture. He suggested that we grow all of our animal feed on trees and uh, graze animals underneath. It's on the, on the hilly slopes. Save annual agriculture for the flatland and just grow our uh, grain crops and vegetable crops down on the flatland. Uh, so that kind of line of thinking led me to permaculture. Um, I got this first edition hardcover uh, of Permaculture Designer's Manual. And when I first started learning about permaculture and training permaculture with Bill Mollison, uh, the word meant permanent agriculture. And to me, of course, agriculture meant food. And one of the things that Bill said way back when in the um, Australian public television special, The Global Gardener, was that the aim is to create systems that are ecologically sound and economically profitable. That sentence right there has been the essence of my life's work ever since I first heard this way back in the, in the 1980s. Because if we create a system that's ecologically sound, uh, we won't be doing any harm to you know to anything really, except for you know the individual animals that we might eat or plants that we might kill. By the way, I'll sing a song one of these days. I'll play it on the piano called "I Heard the Screams of the Vegetables." Um, so if we create systems that are ecologically sound, economically profitable. Ecolonomics, ecologically sound and economically profitable. David Holmgren laid out a lot of the different principles that uh, Bill Mawson first put out in the uh, Permaculture Designer's Manual. And what we're working on a lot right here is observe, imitate, and interact. Because what I've seen as the primary shortfall, shortcoming in permaculture design as we see it today is a failure to actually observe nature as it actually is and a failure to imitate nature and then a failure to actually interact with it. Somehow permaculturists have come up with this idea that we have to create these uh, plant communities, these guilds of, of systems and that we uh, set things in place and we like stand back from this food forest and just watch it produce forever and ever and ever. Well that's not how this planet works uh, so we're going to go through uh, an actual observations of nature and actual imitations of nature because if we're going to do restoration agriculture we need to know what it is that we're trying to imitate, what it is that we're trying to mimic, and it has to be based on reality, not just uh, some crazy ideas that we came up with. Of course, I wrote this book basically uh, on that whole premise. We're going to mimic ecosystems and plant communities and harvest the yields from it. Now, I've done this week after week, and I'm going to continue to do this until I can run out of examples of what to give, but if we need to if we, if we want to observe and interact, we have to understand the difference between an observation and a concept. An observation is something that you see, hear, taste, touch, smell, measure with in instruments. You can observe through a period of time or observe a number of replications over and over again. Whereas a concept is an intellectual idea that we create. If you uh, look at the, the term invasive species, uh, most invasive species science 
is done looking through the lens of, of invasive. We're actually seeing an invasion, and then we do all kinds of science around this invasion, uh, and that's not accurate science. We're not actually observing what's going on. We're seeing our concept invasion. We're seeing our concept played out in the real world. Uh, an example that I have from this, there's a, um, a person, a teacher who recently passed away that in, in one sense, this is my talking with, with her. I uh, haven't spoken with her in a long time. Very popular talking about trees and the power of trees, how important they are in human culture and how we need, need them. I went to one of the workshops that she was at, and she walked up to this circle of trees, and all of a sudden, with the perfect woo-woo voices, like everybody, oh, everybody, stop. We're at a power vortex. This is a power vortex that's so amazingly, you know, this and that and the other thing, that the trees have responded by growing in a circle, embracing hearts around it, and just went on and on and on, and all the people in the group were totally spellbound. And I'm looking at this ring of trees. This is not the ring of trees she was looking at. And there in the center of this ring of trees was this, uh, the, the rotting remains of a stump. And then around it, you could see all these little, little uh, these trees sprouting up. And each one of those trees came from one of those root buttresses. Now, if we're going to observe nature, we have to observe actual reality here. And what I observe in this picture, I see this little uh, flat stump. How do we know that a redwood tree, for example, gets turned into a stump? If it rips in a wind, it's going to be jagged and torn. We can observe redwood stumps over and over and over again. And we pretty much know that the only way the redwood stump gets sawed flat across is with a saw. Somebody cut that tree down. Well, then many trees respond by sending up um, these root sprouts, sprouts from the roots or from the base of the stump. So what we were looking at at this workshop that people paid hundreds of dollars to go to was a tree that someone had cut down, and then these sprouts came up around it. Now, there may actually have been you know, some kind of power vortex going on here, but that was not the observable reality. The people in that group had no basis in reality. They had a concept planted in their mind, and that's what they embraced forever. And although there may have still have been this power vortex in the center of this thing, uh, they're going to have a misunderstanding of the actual reality of how uh, uh, nature works, how planet Earth works. We want to observe what's really there. And when we observe what's really there through deductive reasoning, through gathering more evidence, eventually what will happen is a concept will be given to us from this particular picture. This particular picture shows us right here. We have the evidence. We've observed. A uh, redwood tree was cut down. We know a little bit about the behaviors of redwood trees. They sprout from the base of the, uh, of the stump. And so all of these are actually genetically probably the same tree. There may have been a little bit of a genetic change when a bud opened up. These dormant buds are a survival strategy of redwoods because redwoods, and we'll talk a lot more about this later on, are a fire-tolerant uh, species, and one of their survival strategies is have these hidden buds under the ground, protected under the ground, so if the top burns off and dies, these buds sprout up, and there it goes. Uh, so we need, to, uh, we need to generate our concepts based on the reality of uh, what we actually observe and not take our concepts and lay it down on, on reality. Uh, what do we see here? What we can see is we see all, what we actually see is all the branches on the tree for some, this is a spruce tree, for some reason are all pointing to the right. So they're all pointing to the right. And look at this little clump of bushes down here that were mostly blueberry bushes. They're all kind of leaning to the right here. So if we were to take a concept and lay it on top of it, let's say that they are, uh, this is actually facing, um, this facing a harbor off to the screen right. They're all reaching their arms out to greet the, the uh, you know, people coming off the ship. That's a concept that I just laid on this picture that fails to describe the actual uh, forces that might have uh, shaped the destinies of these trees. This is an example of what's called wind flagging. We can observe this phenomena over and over and over again. Once you have regular winds above a certain miles per hour, I believe this, this uh, uh, state of wind flagging um, you'll be able to see this like half tree kind of thing at around, I think that one's around 13 miles an hour. There's a whole entire uh, scale of, of uh, wind degrees. You can look at this tree and you figure out what the scale is and it'll show you the degree of wind flagging and you can know the average wind speed and the average wind direction 
on this site uh, that's historically. And if we look at this tree over here, if this tree is 150 years old, we know that for 150 years there's been a prevailing wind from screen left blowing to the right at a certain miles per hour, so much so that it changes all of the characters on this site. If you're going to try to do a permaculture project on this site and you think that you have to sit down and observe this site for a long time before you do anything, you observe it, you think you learn something, then you go plant bananas, well, you've missed the whole point because what we're looking at here is this is a white spruce. By knowing the habits of the species, white spruce is a, is a circumpolar species. It'll tolerate 50, 70, 100 below zero. Long winter, it can, it can be frozen solid from you know, mid-September until April, uh, and it can tolerate temperatures up to 110, 115 degrees. It can tolerate uh, fairly dry sites. It can obviously tolerate wind. So just by looking at this tree, we've learned uh, however old this tree is, let's say 100 years for this, this one in the background, we've just learned 100 years worth of uh, climate and weather data on this site by looking at those trees. We know what the average wind speeds are, we know what the temperature extremes are because, because we have observed nature and we have other examples of where these species survive. Um, we've been talking about disturbance. Uh, ecosystems change in, in species composition and uh, structure and, and function by being disturbed somehow. This is a picture from uh, a week ago at my farm. Uh, a week ago, we had had 10 inches of rain uh, overnight, and 100 acres upstream from my uh, property came roaring down the valley and washed away some of my, this is my lowest valley crossing uh, on New Forest Farm, southwest Wisconsin, and it really started to erode this channel over here. How did I know that a flood came through? Well, one, I saw it. Well, two, I didn't have to see it. I could look at the evidence. You see the grass leaning over, and I can tell because the grass is leaning over that this was a relatively recent event. Uh, grass, this, this will respond in less than a week, and it'll be standing back up as a tuft of grass. Trees are a different story. They'll, they'll stay leaned over like this, and depending on how, how damaged the trunk or the roots were, it may stay leaning over. But I know this hasn't been leaning over for more than a year, because if it was leaning over for more than a year, this shoot would be going straight up to the, to, the sun, to the sun. This is how the plants respond to disturbance. So by understanding disturbance and by understanding how it affects our site, and I have a slide later that says this, understand how the disturbance affects that site, what it does to the species composition, what it does to the structure. This is all part of the structural thing. Um, and the function, obviously, extra water, uh, damaged broken trees, uh, new nutrients perhaps, silts, etc. Well, what's fascinating about this picture, that was last week. Uh, uh, so t Tuesday night into Wednesday was when the big rains came to 10 inches. Thursday, it didn't rain much all day. I spent the day recovering, rounding up livestock, fixing fence, and all that kind of stuff. Then on Friday, it rained again, and it did this. Um, this is the same site, slightly different angle. So what was, if we see this piece of foliage right here, that piece of foliage right there is uh, this. And so if we see where this trunk of the tree is, we see where the erosion was like that. Uh, then after just one more day of rain, and this has moved uh, 18 to 20 feet upstream. This was only a three and a half inch rain, uh, but everything was super saturated and the water just roared. Well, what we can see, all these branches, this is that broken branch, obviously there. And see how this, this broken branch has, does have a shoot that's going straight up? And this trunk is kind of going this way, and these are almost going straight up. I think that this was knocked over by water a year ago, two years ago maybe, and the chute goes up. So by looking at the evidence provided to us, we see stones here, jagged, uh, coarse stone. These are not smooth pebbles. If you've been to like a mountain stream in New Hampshire or high up in the Rocky Mountains where a stream's been there for a long, long time, these rocks have been tumbled. They've had silt and grit that's pounded against it for, for a long, long time. The stones are smooth and round. These are jagged chunks of boulder. They've been freshly broken out of the ground. So if I come up to this site, I'm going to buy this piece of property and say, oh, yeah, you know, this never floods or whatever. It's like, no, this place floods quite regularly. Uh, at, least, at least two years ago, it flooded like this before. Uh, what we can see, some of these larger rocks have moss on it, so these ones haven't moved. So we haven't had a flood big enough 
to move this one, but we've had floods big enough to move this one because a rolling stone does not grow moss. So just by looking at the evidence, understanding how moss works, how trees grow, how they respond to being bent, how they respond to being broken, how they respond to having a silly little chihuahua dog that keeps showing up. This is Cowboy Bill. He's about to move to Colorado, so look for him out there. And so we need to understand what the disturbance does to the system, what it actually does, and then how that affects the current system. That new silt and that new debris back here, how is that going to, how is that going to affect the grass that was buried, first of all, in that nice soft silt that we saw in the previous picture, um, this stuff. This might have actually brought extra nutrients, and the grass might be growing more vigorously. But then once we get here, we've buried it perhaps too deep and under rocks. Well, now we've had this mixing of soil layers. Well, that's right. Permaculturists say you can't mix the soil layers. It's against the law, and you're going to destroy things. Well, nature mixes soil all the time. So now we have this new mix of minerals in here. The soil life is going to respond a different way. One of the things about Elaine Ingham, who's on the webinar tomorrow night, uh, she's basically the woman who who almost single-handedly brought soil biology into the common awareness of how important soil biology is for the health of plants and especially crops. Um, if it wasn't for her uh, tireless work, uh, it wouldn't be as popular as it is today. Um, it's been known about in scientific communities for long periods of time, but nobody's pushed it as, as being important until she came along. So we need to know how it affects the system and then what the new conditions are created, and that will tell us how we choose to interact with our site. Um, you know, it's the disturbances can create new landforms, rearrange the parent material, debris deposit, uh, sand dunes, we'll see some of that later, changes the light if it rips openings in a, in a site, uh, it'll affect the competitiveness of what's there. I mean, if I'm a little tree and I've been ripped and torn like this, I may not be able to spring back as fast as grass can, or one kind of tree grows faster and now sh shades this out, and so on. We need to understand how this site will now change. Guaranteed there's going to be a whole flush of new little annual plants coming in here. Annual plants are a part of the economy of nature. Any seeds of giant ragweed, foxtail grass, uh, immediately poof, they'll sprout right up in here. We have a uh, velvet leaf is another one of our common weeds. Um, all kinds of uh, burdock will probably sprout in here. I just pulled a thing out of my sock. I don't know what these are. I have a bad word for them. I'm not going to use it on the air. So if one, once we observe over and over again, understand what the evidence is telling us, we've learned, we've observed our site right here. We've, we have a, a, a long site record. Now, a lot of what we're going to talk about tonight are the biological legacies. Any disturbance usually leaves biological legacies. Last week I even showed an example, I think it was last week, of uh, a, a ginkgo tree that was like 100 meters from ground zero at Hiroshima when the atomic bomb went off. It got burned to a crisp, and because it is a fire-resistant uh, um, species, it was able to survive, and it sprouted out new buds, and it was so impressive that everybody you know, picked that as a very important place of, of spiritual renewal, and they built a temple around it. We need to look at our legacies and learn from the, the biological legacies. They will teach us a lot about our site. Also the physical legacies, if you have pit and mound, the classic pit and mound topography is one of the most common landscape features. Erosion features like I showed previously and I'll show some more again. Just the shape of the land itself is a physical legacy of how that area was created. Where I live in southwest Wisconsin, uh, of course we're surrounded by the Midwest which is about as flat and boring as can be, I can't stand it. Uh, after the, the glaciers, the, the idea was that as the uh, ice melted, there was a certain amount of uplifting and all this extra water roared through and it carved these canyons. If you drive through southwest Wisconsin right now, you say, oh, what nice hills and valleys. But if you look at it from an aerial uh, photography, it's not hills and valleys, it's a canyonlands, about an 80 mile uh, radius canyonlands in southwest Wisconsin, a little bit of Minnesota, Iowa, and Illinois. Uh, that's a physical legacy that told us how was this land shape formed. So where I live right here was formed by catastrophic rainfall events carving up massive amounts of debris, possibly very, very fast. Uh, two or three years ago, there was a mile and a half section of one of the bluffs that just let go, and it buried like four, five, six houses and all of the railroad tracks, which was really critical because it was a time of year when they were shipping a lot of corn out of uh, 
uh, Wisconsin and wheat out of Minnesota, and they were down for, you know, I think over a month just clearing off all the debris. Understand your biological legacies, and you'll learn a lot about the temperature regime, the moisture regime, prevailing winds, soil types. You'll learn a lot about the soil chemistry because certain trees will not survive with certain um, soil chemistry. So you'll learn a lot about the soil biology because the above-ground biology and the below-ground biology are intimately connected. You learn about how the rain falls, how catastrophic it falls. So if you want to observe your site, start observing the physical legacies and the biological legacies of your site. I already mentioned that it tells you all the temperature extremes, rainfall patterns, soil wind patterns, fire regime, etc. And we'll see this one again, but just quickly, I already saw this. Well, first of all, there's a redwood tree. Well, redwoods are found in a certain uh, climactic range. They have these high temperatures and low temperatures. They usually have lots of moisture available in wintertime, but they have to survive a big, long, dry summer, so they need to store lots of water in their trunk and in their roots. Um, they have a real thick bark to resist fire. And oh, look at this. This one even has evidence of being burned. So we just learned 5,000 years worth of history by looking at this one picture. I don't have to sit down and wait for 5,000 years to know what the proper ecological response to this site is. There's a certain set of conditions, a certain uh, set of weather conditions, climate conditions, uh, topography, uh, and there's a certain suite of species that will thrive in these conditions. And we can look in nature and find out what those species are, pick the ones that have value as food, feed, medicine, fiber, something that we can sell, trade, carve, work into a craft, plant those as a system. And we know that if with minimal care, they'll be there two, three, four, five thousand years. If we planted a system based around the redwood, we know that it can be there for five thousand years with no kindness from humans. It's probably only abuse. Obviously abuse here because it's all been cleared to do what? Plant wheat. These idiots. Sorry, pardon my German. Um, and they left a little stand in the middle because it's pretty. What do we see here? Once again, let's observe the, the observable phenomena. We have a redwood tree. Uh, the thick bark. We saw the previous one. This is the same place. The same place right here. Uh, here's a stump. Once again, somebody cut these redwood trees down. We also know that if you've got if you've got some redwood trees like this, redwood trees don't just show up all by themselves. They're a gang, and they cover you know, thousands of square miles um, all together as a forest. They're a forest community. They're not really a clump community. So some kind of disturbance happened. Uh, the disturbance happened, oh, probably about this long ago, however fast redwood trees grow. Actually, I was surprised to learn how fast they actually do grow. Because then there was a little historic data that this, this particular area was uh, first settled in the uh, 1870s, 1880s, big time. <clears throat> and it wasn't for the, for the redwood trees. It was for gold and silver. It was a really uh, a wealthy mineral area. And they just used the redwood as, as timber for building materials and so on. So this was about, say, 130 years old, the, this tree right there. So we learn a lot just by knowing we know that so these trees, 130, well, maybe this was 2,000 years. So you got for the last 2,000 years, these guys have been shedding bark. They've been exuding certain um, uh, sugars into the soil that makes certain soil light. They've been dropping needles, which has a certain chemical reaction on the soil. We can understand and know that we're going to see things like gooseberries uh, and currants. Uh, we're going to see blackberries and raspberries in association with this, and we're going to see a lot of fungi in association with this because it's a, it's a shaded closed canopy forest type. So we can cut it all down, amend the soil, and grow corn. Or we can say, look, we can grow gooseberries and grapes. Um, it's amazing. There's an amazing sight going to this place. And, and what I saw, I don't think that I'm seeing anything special. This, to me, seems like shouldn't everybody just know this stuff? Uh, and what these are, these are the fire adaption and adaptation strategy of the redwood. These are all the uh, stump and the basal sprouts coming up from the, uh, from the ground. So uh, part of what stimulated this particular thread uh, a number of weeks ago, we're talking about disturbance, but I want to tie it directly to our management. What makes a restoration agriculture different than a run-of-the-mill permaculture or a regenerative or a, you know, savory this or, or uh, whatever organic, pure organic. The difference is that we are designing as ecological in agriculture as we possibly can. We are going to design absolutely everything after the, the 
ecology of the place. So I got to my farm 20 years ago. This picture was only taken like a week or so ago. And uh, this is a gigantic sugar maple tree. And uh, when we got the farm 20 years ago, uh, everything around except this gigantic sugar maple was grass shorter than this. It was grazed as close as a golf course green. This is actually the acre that I first grew my first crop of squash um, back in 1995. So we see this gigantic sugar maple tree. Uh, one of the things that we notice, notice here, here's the center of the trunk. Notice that there's more vegetation, more branches, longer branches. There's more of this big, huge, leaning shape on the right-hand side uh, than there is on the left-hand side. What do you think that tells us? Well, let's look at the picture again. What do we observe? I observe that this appears to be a lighter color, as if maybe the sun is over here. Notice how the sky is bleached out, and this is lighter over here. So it looks to me that this tree has been uh, getting the most of its solar gain from this particular side here. And as it grows through time, it just keeps growing and deploying more leaves facing the sun. <clears throat> and over here in the shade, it's like, yeah, we got some leaves out there, but you know, not too much. We don't really, you know, there's not a lot. They're reaching and trying, but this, they keep deploying leaves. This automatically tells us where the most effective sunshine is coming on this site. We don't have to put up gnomon boards and little sun tracking, this and that's and the other thing. Just look at the vegetation. It'll tell you how to orient things. So which way do you think I oriented, oriented my house for solar gain? Yeah, you're right, exactly like this, unless you guessed wrong. <clears throat> a little closer look at this tree, and it's fascinating. One of the things that is known about uh, sugar maple, sugar maple is a late successional plant. We've talked about succession earlier. It actually is extremely shade tolerant, and it actually requires shade in order to get sprouted. So this tree sprouted in the shade, we know, because it's a sugar maple. 99% of them won't sprout out in an open field. They won't sprout in the desert, uh, etc. So somehow, at one point in time, uh, about these many years ago, and by talking to local foresters and sawmills, uh, I learned really quickly that a tree of this diameter, it's about 38 inches diameter at chest height, is about 300 years old. So that we know that 300 years ago, this tree sprouted in the shade of other trees. Well, late successional in this region meant it was coming up underneath uh, maybe ash and oak, uh, maybe it was underneath basswood, maybe it was underneath other maples. But we know at least that 300 years ago, this was a closed canopy, fully shaded forest. And part of, part of how we know that is, one, that's where these sugar maples sprout. And two, it grew straight and tall to reach for the sun. There was no sun anywhere else except straight up until it was about 20 foot tall. Then it could start to put out branches. Um, anybody who knows the, the typical branching pattern of a sugar maple, you see this this kind of big upright V's, you see this dendritic V pattern here, it's reaching up. So that's what sugar maples look like. And these branch angles aren't the strongest in the world. So what we also see is at some point in time when this tree was probably uh, add this tree trunk to this tree trunk, so 24 feet tall, somehow now there's catastrophic winds that maybe snapped a branch and then it tried to grow up again and tries to grow up. Uh, and these this tips keep snapping off. So what does that tell us? Then we got another huge branch like that snapped off and snapped off. What this has told us, and too bad I didn't get another few inches taller on this, on this tree up the top of the screen, um, this is basically a 300-year record. So let's go 250 years because if it was in, in the uh, forest. So maybe 250 years ago, something happened and the forest disappeared. Somebody cut it down, a forest, a fire got out of control, and it killed all the stuff around it, and all of a sudden it was released to be in the wide open. Well, now that it's in the wide open, it can reach up to the sun, uh, and now that it's wide open, it's exposed to the catastrophic storm winds, which in our area primarily come from the southwest, because these are all pointing northeast. So already we've, told, we've learned that uh, it was a forest 250 um, to 300 years ago. Uh, what kind, we don't necessarily know. Uh, so it was shady conditions. Uh, sugar maple will tolerate 50 below zero Fahrenheit up to 110 or so Fahrenheit, so we know about the temperature range. It prefers 30 to 60 inches of rainfall a year, so we know it's somewhere in that band, so you're going to get somewhere between 30 and 60 inches of rain a year. We know that catastrophic winds come from the southwest. 
Uh, catastrophic winds from the southwest in the northern hemisphere are usually frontal storms. So we have a lot of these big, huge uh, frontal um, uh, like thunder and lightning uh, clouds, convective clouds that snap it off, pushing it to the northeast. So look at how much information we gather just from this tree, hundreds of years worth of, of information just by observing it. So because I know the temperature range is going to be between you know, 50 below and, and 100 above, am I going to plant something that, that's subtropical? No, that's just totally ridiculous. Even if uh, I'll, I'll push the limits, I'll try to extend the range of these plants, but I, I can't get away with growing some pure tropical plants here. I want to see if it's on my next slide because there's another thing I wanted to show. Oh, yeah, look at these branches, how they've grown. Choo, choo. These are all snap-offs because it's just like that little tree we saw in the brook where the, the water knocked it over, then it reaches up for the sun. This would have been like the top of the tree, just broke right off, kaboom, and it all tries to grow back up uh, to the top again. One of the things that we can see uh, not so clearly in the other picture, but here, notice there's this kind of a line. The bark comes down this way, dee, 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 and all of a sudden the bark is different. Uh, all of this bark down here, it's old and rugged, but it's not the same. There's, there's this distinct line that you can see right here. On all trees, uh, here's a stupid question, but it's not. Where do trees sprout? If I take a tree seed, uh, they will sprout either at the soil surface or below the soil surface. Trees typically don't sprout up in midair and send down a root. So what we can tell, this is called a ground line on this tree. What we can tell is the soil used to be up at this high. This is, uh, this is about three feet off the ground. So oh my goodness, what on earth would have removed three feet of soil over the lifetime of this tree, over, you know, 300 years worth of tree? Could it have been, uh, could it have been these catastrophic rainstorms? That's possible. This does look like it's kind of a lower depressed area, and as a matter of fact, it is kind of a lower depressed area, so there's probably been some erosion here. The shape of the land will tell us that. Um, but if you go to the other side of the tree, you'll see that this, this ground line is, is still up about a foot and a half off, off the uh, soil surface. One of the things that happens uh, in most places is even if it's fully grassed over, uh, you will get some uh, soil erosion. Anytime a raindrop hits exposed soil, the finest particles, which are your clays, go into suspension in the water. Then as that water runs away, it's just removed some micro-fine particles. So 250 years, if this has been grassland for 250 years, uh, 250 years worth of rainfall, catastrophic thunderstorm rainfall, tornadoes and so on, has eroded about two feet of soil. Now the subsoil beneath it, in, underneath a prairie, if this has been prairie, which it probably was, because if we go uh, 150 years back is when Europeans first showed up, and that's what they found in this area was mostly savanna in this part of, of uh, Wisconsin. So this would have been a maple tree out in the middle of savanna. It's a little bit uncharacteristic for a maple, except that it tells us how it got there. Sprouted in a forest, the soil was this deep, uh, grew up surrounded by other trees, somehow uh, some disturbance came by, removed the other trees, it became a big, round, open-grown tree, exposed to the storms, it broke its top off, so I got 300-year history lesson just by learning how to observe, understanding this species, how it acts. I learned about the weather, the, the storm patterns, and so on and so on and so on. You guys follow what I'm talking about? This is not coming to an area and saying, oh, let's plant an herb spiral because we'll have things exposed to the sun and exposed to the shade and all kinds of stuff will grow great. The human, the human race has to adapt to this particular planet instead of forcing our silly ideas on the planet. Let's adapt to how this planet actually works and has been working, uh, and we don't have a lot of time to waste, um, so we might as well do as best we can to get it right. Once again, this ground line, you see the eroded soil from it. Here's a little seedling of a pecan just to show you what, what a ground line looks like in a smaller seed. And when you get seedlings, whether you plant in the spring or in the fall, look down at the root. You'll notice the bark comes down, the bark comes down, and there's, there's usually a distinct line. This is the ground line. Uh, you know, so somewhere in here, this is probably a grafted pecan. So there's the ground line of the original tree. They put in a bud graft and then it sprouted up. Look for your ground line and do your tree a favor. Bury it a little deeper. You know, bury it. Don't go too far above the ground line. 
Some species can't tolerate that at all. Others can. Uh, so maybe 300 years ago, somebody planted this maple tree out in the middle of the field. I don't know. It seems pretty unlikely to me. Uh, here's another example that I think is pretty fascinating. We look at this tree. Obviously sweet. We see a lot of erosion. Now here's something that's really fascinating. Now look at, we've got topsoil and we've got a bunch of rocks and debris. This is in that main gully that I showed a picture of. What do we know about this place? It floods, catastrophic rains. We get a lot of rocks deposited. So uh, let's go down a few layers. Once upon a time, there's all these rocks. Uh, plants get established, start to develop a topsoil. They convert the subsoil into topsoil. That's what plants and, and soil life do. Then all of a sudden there was a flood, and it got buried with heavy debris. <clears throat> and then it got covered with some more silt that obviously washed down from uh, topsoil, I mean from subsoil upstream and it buried that all. Well then another, then it started to develop into topsoil, then another flood comes by and buries it, and then uh, this topsoil develops on top of it. So we, we have this historic record right down at the bottom of the valley. We know that for, if this tree is uh, 50 years old, at least for 50 years, this period, this, this uh, repeated thing of, of flood and soil development, flood, deposition, soil development, deposition, soil development, so on and so on, has been occurring in this particular valley. We know how the rain comes down. We know how it responds when it hit this land just by looking at this tree. Uh, another thing about this tree that we can tell, somebody unmuted again, uh, is that the last, I uh, see all the moss on these roots here. This erosion has been fairly, uh, fairly recent down here. See how clean this is? And then we get a little bit of moss. So this, this has been here a while. It's about three years probably since this, is, this part has been heavily scoured. Uh, so we know that maybe three years ago was when the last flood came through that was able to erode all this material. So by observing our uh, physical legacies, like the erosion gully and the, the uh, biological legacies, the trees, the moss, we can learn a lot of, about our site. Here's a site in Michigan I was at a couple, uh, a couple weeks ago. Now, who knows of trees that sprout in midair and drop roots sideways to go and then lean automatically? Uh, this, this tree trunk, trees grow straight up when they possibly can. So this tree probably sprouted from here, from a seed, and it was pointing straight up at one point in time. It was pointing straight up and growing to a certain size, and then the very soil that it lived in, a fine sandy soil, blew away, and it fell over. So the prevailing winds coming from the left knocks this tree over. This happens to be a particular species of tree that will root readily from a branch. A lot of trees will do that. Uh, willows, cottonwoods, poplars, um, basswoods, silver maple, sugar maple not so readily. Uh, so what this did is as it fell over it landed on the, on the soil surface. How do we know that this landed on the soil surface? Because there are roots coming out of here and it needed to have soil contact in order to send down roots. So once upon a time, the soil was at this level here. Then a tree blew over uh, and see how it sent shoots up. Well, and when it blew over here, it probably landed right on the soil. The roots started to go down. Well, then the soil kept moving away. This is in the Warren Dunes State Park. And this, this soil is continuing to move stage right. There's all kinds of trees out there that are just like on these wicked stilts. It's really incredible. So by observing this, we know what kind of species will grow there, the temperature range, uh, the prevailing winds. Obviously, we now see the kind of soil. What kind of damage are you, are you going to expect? You're going to expect a lot of wind damage, a lot of sand blasting. You'll probably want to put up windbreaks. So automatically, we've just been told what to do on our farm or ranch by just by looking at the physical legacies around us. And what we can see here is an old stump. This happens to be an oak stump. Well, oaks live, they're born out in the open, they're a fire dependent species. Uh, so this was probably in a similar era as the sugar maple, it was probably pre-sugar maple um, on my site. This is actually on my site, New Forest Farm. And it grew up and then for some reason it was removed. And this has a really jagged stump. I don't know if this one was cut or if this one uh, just got old and fell over. But I bet you it was removed approximately these many years ago. And knowing how fast the trees grow on this site, it was probably 30 years ago that this tree was removed. So if that tree was removed, uh, these little trees, uh, cherry trees, are all black cherry, 
they have a, a cherry pit. You guys know what a cherry pit looks like. Cherry pit, if you throw it into the grass, is able to wiggle its way all the way down to the grass, and it can sprout in a, in a heavy sod. And because it tastes bitter, it has, uh, smells like uh, uh, almond essence, um, I think it's is it cyanide or arsenic? Somebody help me with that. Uh, they were able to get established. So there was grass around this oak tree uh, when these little cherries somehow were able to sprout. Well, then 30 years ago, the oak gets removed, and we have this little understory. We have hazel and hop hornbeam coming up, all this brush, and the grass has started to fade. We've got some raspberries in there. What else do I got for evidence going around over here? There's some uh, high bush American cranberry. And so what we just learned here is a, is a short-term 30-year history from a grassy savanna to closed canopy forest. And this is, <laughs> this is a great one. Uh, this was also at Warren Dunes. They cut this tree down and, and uh, painted the stump with an uh, antibiotic because they have oak wilt in the area and they're trying to kill all the oak wilt disease that they possibly can. And what I thought was so great is this is a little cherry tree that sprouted in the stump. Now, sometimes a tree will, if, if you see the ground line above ground level significantly, it will have had a seed landing on a stump. And then this tree starts to grow as the stump is rotting. And so the ground line may be like, this is like two feet off the ground. The ground line of this cherry tree eventually will be two feet off the ground as this oak stump rots away. And I went looking for one. There was, there was one uh, particular uh, tree that I had that had these stilts going into the ground that uh, I removed the trees around it 20 years ago, and it was growing in a stump. Well, the stump rotted away, and so there was this tree on stilts. I went to go find it today, and I couldn't find it. This is an interesting photograph right here. Restoration agriculture, we know oaks will grow to giant proportions here. We also know Solomon seal, fall Solomon seal as a ground cover plant. We got dandelions. Uh, there, was, uh, there were a lot of ramps in the area. Over here is pawpaw. These are pawpaw. Obviously cherries. Let's base an agriculture around some fagaceae, maybe chestnut, maybe oak. That's fine. Let's have these ground growing plants. These Canada Mayflower in there. Uh, uh, these, what are these? These are probably not raspberries, but there, are, there were raspberries in the area. We got pawpaws. Let's design an agricultural system based on these species, and we know that these ones will survive, and we'll know that they'll do quite well uh, without too much care. Some things we want to observe in trees. Um, this happens to be a red oak, and uh, if you can imagine a tree growing as fast as it possibly can, that bark is just getting stretched, stretched, stretched thin. This is an extremely fast-growing uh, red oak tree. And you can see how wide my wife is here. Um, and then you see how wide this tree is uh, and how smooth the bark is. This is indicator that uh, either this soil was, is phenomenally rich soil, and this tree just grew like crazy, there's maybe more water available to it while still being well-drained. And it's also a function of the genetics of this oak tree. Obviously, this oak tree grew up uh, in competition with others, so it reached straight up for the light. But a smoother bark like this, in most cases, um, there are some exceptions, means that that tree was growing so fast that that bark was stretched thin, whereas typically other trees in the area that had uh, the same diameter has this, have this real coarse bark. So if we look at this tree here and that tree there, they're the same diameter, same diameter, but this one is younger than that one there. So when we make a management decision in here, uh, we may want to you know, uh, save seed genetics from this one because of its speed of growth. Uh, we may want to save seed from this one um, for whatever reasons. Maybe it makes a finer uh, quality wood longer term because it is growing slower. Maybe we want to cut these down and grow our garden there because it's richer soil. We'll do some poking around, but we just, we just observed something here that for some reason this tree and this site, uh, only 100 yards from this one, growing much, much faster. These are all clues. Back to our little fire scar here. One of the uh, a, a real uh, significant um, factor, of course, we've talked quite a bit about, and we're going to talk a little bit more about it tonight, is fire. It is, it is the, um, the major uh, disturbance in ecosystems around, around the world. And what can be uh, learned about fire, you look at this right here, 1612 to 1915. You have a record on one side of the tree. Why always on one side of the tree? Well, maybe the fires are all coming from this direction. There's a prevailing wind. 
This is going to tell us it's going to be some hot and some dry. There's some way to ignite it. Is it going to be, is it lightning? Uh, whatever. So we have a record in this burned bark all along the way from 1659 all the way up to 1915 when this was cut. This redwood tree here, if, if these are 2,000-year-old redwood trees, look at the fire record we have in here. We could go back and have an exact, you know, exactly how many years apart on average. Look at this. Ta-doom, 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 ta-doom. That was a little sooner. It was pretty fiery. Maybe this meant it was a drought. If the rings are closer together and we have more fire scars, maybe that was drought. So a lot of um, the fire history can be learned from fire scars. And I'm going to deal a little bit with some fire adaptations because if we go to a site, uh, you know, uh, we've been suppressing fire for the most part in, in North America since the, the late 1800s, early 1900s in earnest. But the species that we grow are fire adapted. They can survive and thrive in fire regimes. Uh, and what, what it'll, it'll tell you um, how, how, to, how to interact with this site. They've got a couple different strategies. They avoid damage, they recover fast, they colonize fast, or some of them actually intentionally you know, help to light the place on fire. Um, they're fire promoting. And uh, we want to understand how these operate because this will tell us uh, what kind of trees we want to grow, what kind of disturbance we can, we can expect, and how do we interact with these species? How do we interact as human beings with fire-adapted species? Some adaptations, a thick fire-resistant bark, the fire goes through and burns it and, it and it survives. Trees that don't have this or other ground plants that don't have that will all burn off and we have these trees persisting. So they're resisting uh, damage by fire. Some other ones will have that fire-resistant bark, and underneath they've got these little dormant buds that then sprout into the new branches, so a fire can go through the top. It might even be a crown fire. The whole thing burns off, and these little sprouts protected by the bark can take off. This is from uh, pond pine, uh, which is uh, Pinus serotina, I think it is. It's mostly a southeastern into Louisiana kind of uh, uh, tree very fire adapted. It's pretty amazing in some of its strategies. It has a number of these different strategies from these epicormic sprouts, epicormic just below the skin. Um, it also has these buried buds. So many times you get seedlings from a, from a nursery. It's like, oh man, something happened. They're crooked. You know, I don't know. Something happened during planting. That's no, just what they do. Because if you imagine that the seed lands on the ground and it, it does this on purpose, sends out this little basal crook and underneath there's buds. So if a surface fire goes by, it doesn't burn that because that, little, these little buds in the crook uh, are protected to a certain extent from a light surface fire. Uh, the grass stage, those of you in longleaf pine territory are very familiar with this. Once again, like it's a mostly a southeastern third of the, of the USA. Uh, the, uh, the foliage is so thin and light uh, that as a fire goes through there, it just burns off real fast. It, it doesn't ever create enough fuel to have a, a long, hot, sustaining fire. So it's a real flash fire that goes through, just burns off the foliage, and then it'll continue to grow. Uh, longleaf pine spends a lot of time putting down a taproot. It's an amazingly deep taprooted tree, uh, so much so that last time I worked in a longleaf pine situation, Eric, the bulldozer operator, broke the bulldozer. And the deep rooting, this is a survival strategy, because now you've got uh, part of the tree that's protected from the heat, uh, soil is a very good insulator, so any, any buds that you have down here, like in the redwood that we saw sprouting up from the stump, if those, those initial the buds were buried and the root is protected from the heat of the flame, so even if this top burns off, these little buds just get walloped with all of the stored sugars in here, and it, it responds really quickly afterwards. Uh, hickories are amazing. You get hickory seedlings, sometimes they have like a 3-inch tall seedling with like an 18-inch taproot. Another fire response is a rapid juvenile growth. Here's longleaf pine again. Once it spends a number of years putting down its taproot, it just grows like crazy. Three, four feet sometimes at first when it's young. Uh, anytime you see super rapid juvenile growth in plants, it's typically a, a fire adaptation response. Another thing is fire-resistant live foliage. The ones I'm most familiar with are things like aspen. Oaks are to a certain extent too. You can run a fire through oaks and their leaves just kind of they get all withered and, and uh, warped, but they don't die. And if you're, if you're doing any landscaping around your house, you want to protect your, your house, 
uh, and you're in a fire-prone area like Hello, Colorado people, you know, New Mexico, etc., uh, look up fire-resistant landscaping and uh, select all these different plants. And uh, that, that's a great way to have both a beautiful landscape and fire protection at the same time. So by observing nature, we get clues as to how to interact with it. Um, branch habit. <clears throat> uh, many tree species are self-pruning. As they grow, they create a little shade, and enough shade kills the lower branches, and the branches drop off <laughs> right away. And so now if any kind of grass fire were to start out here and come roaring in, there's no ladder fuels to bring the fire up into the top of this tree here. Uh, back here we see a, a double combo. We see a self-pruning habit. This is white pine back here. We see a self-pruning habit combined with browse. This is the browse line of the deer around here. Uh, in the wintertime, they'll hang out in this little thicket of pines, get a little shelter because there's not as much snow falling in it. It's all retained in the foliage, and then they browse off the lower branches. So even livestock uh, such as cattle or you know, wildlife like deer can help prevent fire. Um, these are just these are observations you can make. So I, I was able to look at this, and I can tell uh, where the deer like to hang out, and I can tell that these are all fire-adapted species by their habit. And so having fire-adapted species where you're at, you know that. You know, those species wouldn't have gotten there historically unless there was fire that you know, made the, the habitat suitable for them. Uh, another adaptation of, of uh, fire adaptation is uh, rapid foliage decomposition. If you have lots of grasses, and especially dry grasses underneath, that's going to torch and flame. So now these guys have already dropped their branches. You're not, a lot, not likely to have ladder fuels climbing up. And now this foliage decomposes real quick, and it comes. the grass fire comes in, doesn't have any more fuel to burn, and the fire goes out. Uh, uh, aspens are a classic uh, rapid foliage decomposition tree combined with uh, bark uh, that doesn't burn very well and foliage that doesn't burn very well. It's so fire resistant, it's fire adapted obviously, that uh, uh, firefighters, forest firefighters, I was a trained forest firefighter actually um, quite a few years ago, one of our goals was to create fire lines and intentionally steer forest fires towards the aspens because you know that if you have a forest fire roaring along, you send it to the aspens, it will go into the aspens and it will peter out because it runs out of fuel. Rapid recovery strategies. Uh, here's stump sprouts, uh, basal sprouts. Uh, once again, oh wait, here's a power vortex. Look at that. Um, root suckers. These are all ways that after a fire, the tree can recover real quickly afterwards because it's got a large root full of all the stored energy from uh, from before. It uh, restarts that growth as fast as it can. Here's an interesting tree. This is a, a beech tree, American beech, European beech, uh, South American beech. They're a late succession tree. The, the parent tree itself, this guy right here, is rather thin bark, and it, and it, it doesn't uh, burn from the fire, but because it has such thin bark, the parent tree will die. But that's okay, because what it's doing is it's setting up a strategy. These guys, these guys will grow underneath oak trees. They'll grow their foliage right through the oak trees and eventually shade out the oak trees and kill the oak trees. They're both competitive effects in forests, and they're also... Um, collaborative effects observable in forests. But one of the things with the beech, as the fire goes through here, these leaves don't decay actually very quickly. So what will happen is the fire will come in, it'll come through, and it'll kill the parent tree, and then immediately from the bottom it's like the hydra. They've got like a zillion, this is beech right here, a zillion little beech trees coming up. Um, so after the fire goes through, they'll sacrifice the top, and then the uh, sprouts can come up. All of these are adaptations, fire adaptations. One of the things that, that uh, is a fire adaptation also that's helpful for us is, there, uh, is precociousness, early flowering and seed production. This is a two-year-old chestnut tree with three burrs on it. This afternoon, I was actually going around taking some of these photographs out of New Forest Farm. There's a, uh, a two-year-old chestnut that I had. It's the same year as this. A two-year-old chestnut tree that uh, I counted a couple days ago, 73 chestnut burrs on it. I was going to go take a picture of it, and Wayne and Jeffrey called, and I got distracted. So I never took a picture of it. Another fire adaptation is light windborne seeds. Many of the pines, uh, these are birches over here. Fire goes through, uh, and all these little seeds blow in over a newly prepared site. The ground has been prepared. Perhaps some mineral ex uh, soil is exposed. Um, and you know what I'm thinking of doing? This is I'm about two thirds of the way through, but we're at 
Let me go one more slide here. Yeah, because this is kind of uh, kind of important. Um, is uh, serotonous cones, uh, a plant that holds the cones. And jack pine is a classic. Lodgepole pines are also classic. Those pine cones are sealed up tight. Uh, pond pine is is even more extreme. Not only is it sealed up tight, that seed won't sprout until the temperature goes up to like 250 degrees. Then it all of a sudden says, oh, okay, the next rain and conditions and all that kind of stuff, I'll sprout again. Uh, so uh, if you have a, a place where you have these cones like this, you know that this is a, a site where these plants not only can survive fire, they need fire. They want fire. And if, if you have a lodgepole pine site or a jack pine site, you know fire is coming. Prepare. All right, questions, any questions? Yeah, we do have some. By the way, I said you were going to put your campfire speak, Sean. It's gotten like dark. You look like you're at a campfire for about the last 15 minutes, Mark. It's, uh, we can see it's gotten dark in the room. Um, yeah, I, haven't, so, I haven't turned on the lights. <laughs> a couple of questions. Um, that, that one of them Sam Palmer had from last week, and it is that um, I yet, so it's a water management question. He has a laser level available. Should I use it instead of an A-frame when laying out my property? Oh, absolutely. It's way more accurate than an A-frame. Most laser levels are accurate within two inches over 800 feet. So if you go 800 in one direction, 800 in the other direction, is, is 1,500 feet of, you know, within an inch up or an inch down, that's right on. That's, that's as accurate as any GPS you can get. Way more accurate than an A-frame, and it's faster. You can set it up once, and you can just run almost across the whole entire farm. Do a laser level at night in the fog. What a trip. <laughs> yeah. Cool. Well, Sam has another one. Um, he said, I also wanted to share, my farm is dominated by a hemlock, beech, oak, pine forest, which, in, which the New Hampshire Division of Forests describes as indicative of a forest recovering from agriculture. Excited to be a part of the new ag paradigm, which has, which land does not have to recover from. It's just a comment. That's a great. That's a great comment. That there were a type of agriculture that you don't have to recover from. But I got a question on those hemlocks because if you got hemlocks, that's late, late successional, and it's possible that it could have been 1,500, 1,600 years since the last agriculture. How big are the hemlocks, Sam? If he's still there. Yes. So let's see if he um, puts back a note here. Anybody else that has questions, throw them in here, everybody. You guys have been awesome again. Um, and Mark is great, as always. So eight inches at most, Sam says. Okay. Yeah, so, so most of New Hampshire, you know, 80 90% of New Hampshire was agriculture back in the uh, early 1800s. And so that would give you enough time. So, so that's actually the oak is indicative uh, of it would have come in You'd have like the pine coming in after the ag was abandoned in New Hampshire, and your oaks would be in there because they, they need the full sun. The pines are fire tolerant, which settlers had fires going all the time. Oaks are too. Then what happens is the hemlocks wouldn't come in until the, the pine uh, and the oak starts to fall apart. It oftentimes comes up under pine or on rotten pine trees. And so that's, yeah, it's about, that's a good recovery period though. That's been, it's probably been 150 to 200 years since that was farmed. If you got eight inch diameter hemlocks. Those are pretty good size. Um, John Paul says, thank you. Thanks, guys. Um, and uh, Jack Voth is saying he has some hemlocks that are 18 and to 20 inches in diameter. Jack, where are you at in the, in the country? Um, and um, Sam says, thank you. Um, guys, if you, if you like this, throw some ones up there. Or give a thanks, if you would. So, but Jack is in northwestern Pennsylvania, he says. Um, so he's got 18 to 20 inch, throwing in ones. Awesome, everybody. This is so fascinating. Thank you, Ray. Thank you for that. Everybody else, awesome. Um, I'm going to throw out one because I think he came in. Dustin Hollis, I think you're in here. All right. You're Hi, coming Dustin. out here, here to see me, I think. I think you're coming out for the aquaculture for, for our event. Thank if, that, if that's true, and I think you said that in the note you sent to me, that is so awesome. So, he, and I, uh, he and I were roommates up at a uh, workshop we did at uh, Jordan Beebe's place, Little Farm by uh, the Sea, up in uh, cool. Washington State on the Olympic Peninsula. Cool. Yeah. 
All right, well, there's all kinds of ones and one, one, one. You know, one of the things I'm going to do one of these weeks, everybody, is um, obviously we're going to be marketing this more broadly, and, and um, we want as many people as possible to be members and to gain from this, not so much from Mark's teaching, mine, others, although we hope you gain from that, but mainly we want you to interact with each other and, and learn from each other and gain knowledge and, and share information. You guys are doing that on the Facebook page. There was a question somebody had just the other day, and immediately somebody else came in and gave their answers and thoughts to it. Um, but what I'd like you to do in, um, at, one of the, at some point in the future here is is to give us some of these testimonials, say thank you for this, and then we might ask you if we could if we could use those and put them on our website or put them somewhere where we're where we're promoting. Um, somebody else, Jack said he's got oaks that are about two three two to three feet in diameter in the same area, which is a property border near a small stream. White, what might I do to take advantage of that area? Uh, where, where is this located? Northwestern Pennsylvania. He said that. What, what we also, what we also remember, we talked a little bit about it earlier. Where plant communities will go into it again. Associated with the oaks, typically they 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 prefer full sun. Of course, they'll grow fine with grass. Uh, they like uh, apple, cherry, anything in the prunus family: cherries, plums, apricots, you know, uh, almonds if you're warm enough, uh, hazelnut. Um, Chestnut is a cousin to oak, so you can do chestnut. Uh, grapes, raspberries, blackberries, uh, currants and gooseberries in the shade. Uh, green grass grows all around and livestock. That is, that is a classic oak savanna uh, setup waiting to happen. Just open up the canopy a little bit, get the grass growing, use your cattle and pigs to graze underneath, and please put rings in the pigs' noses. We just came aware of a landowner that's using pigs. And they're just absolutely destroying their forest. Yes, they're opening it up, but they're, they're, they're opening it up way too much. By the way, I'm sorry that he had bad news for you, Jack. There's hardly anything you can grow there. <laughs> <laughs> sorry, give up. Sell the property. <laughs> Move to New York City. Yeah, yeah. Um, all right, anything else? If not, we're going to let Mark take a break. He, he does a lot of his time and helps us with this. This has been great again. Um, I think we had at least four continents tonight. I saw Europe, and, and um, I know we had Asia, and, and then obviously here in the States. I'll still have almost everybody that started with us. Again, one quick, again, if you, if you want to hear Elaine Ingham, and you, I think you mentioned something. I, I did. Uh, if you got anything to say about Aunt Elaine anymore, but come and listen to her tomorrow on the, on the, uh, the, the master, I think it's called master class, sustainability master class um, that, that uh, Matt Powers and uh, Raleigh Latham are doing. And again, they're friends of ours, and they're actually going to be helping us out some. So that's why we're talking a little bit about it. Again, it's free. We're not pitching. There's no, no charge. It's a free deal. So thanks, everybody. Thanks, Mark. Um, I, we have calls tomorrow, I know, about a number of different things. So All right. Thanks, everybody. We'll, we'll continue this next week. See you. Bye. All right. Bye, everybody. Hey, everybody. I bet you enjoyed that immensely. That was one of our most amazing presentations here at the EAT community. Please look forward to our next podcast in the very near future, and we look forward to seeing you again on the EAT Community Podcast.